0: Well, today um, we are looking at worship, and uh, if you have a Bible, which I hope that you do, go ahead, and you can flip over to Romans 12, which is where we're going to kind of land first thing this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, I don't know if we have ushers that have Bibles that we could hand out. Um, Maybe not. Uh, We do have them available out there if you want to hop out there and grab them. But um, we are going to start in Romans 12, so as you're making your way there, um, we are continuing on in our doctrine series. And if, uh, if, uh, by the way, if you came in late, my name is Ryan, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, The the guy that normally speaks up here on Sundays, Matt, is uh, out of town today, and um, so I have the privilege of sharing with you today on worship. But we are continuing through our series on doctrine, and if you've been following along in this book right here called Doctrine, this is kind of what we've been uh, tapping into and following along with with, uh, that book Um, for the last 10 weeks or so, we've been looking at kind of some of the core teachings that Christians hold dear, some of the essentials of our faith. And so today we continue that by looking at this thing called worship, and in that, how God transforms us. So if you have made your way to Romans 12, uh, real quick, we're just going to read the first two verses. And I think the version I'm reading from might be a little bit different than the uh, the screen Bible behind me, but uh, that's okay. Um, and so Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's go ahead and pray. Jesus, we come before you today um, desiring to worship you and and desiring to uh, lift you up, to uh, give you praise in the right way uh, for what you've done, for all that you've done, and for who you are. And and so God, just... uh, Direct us as we, as we learn from you this morning. Holy Spirit, teach us um, as we, as we uh, inquire your word for what it says about worship and how we can better become fully devoted worshipers for you, uh, worshipers of you. Um, worshipers to you. So God, we ask for that this morning. May uh, your blessings fall on us in the form of, of uh, inspiration and, and clarity and revelation um, this morning. And, and in all of that, may you receive the praise, may you receive the glory um, as, we, as we worship you. So we love you and we thank you for this time and for your good word that teaches us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, you and I were created as worshipers. Every single person in this room, every single person on this planet was created by God as a worshiper. Now, there's a distinction there that I want to make because a lot of times what we say is we were created to worship or we were created for worship. And, and while those things are true, they don't necessarily paint the full picture because if we begin by saying that we were created to worship, we begin by saying we were created for worship, while those things are true, what it, what it implies is that God created us and that he created us needing worship. Right, That he is somehow incomplete and needs the worship from us, and so that's why he created us. No, in fact, we were created as worshipers. And by that, what we mean is God created us um, because he desires worship. And he desires people who worship him. He doesn't need worship in any way. He's not incomplete and needing worship to somehow fulfill him or fill him up. But rather, it's the opposite of that. God doesn't need anything. Right? God is fully complete in himself, and so when he creates, he creates simply out of pleasure and simply because he desires to have us in this relationship with him. And, and uh, to illustrate this a little bit, um, we want to look at uh, the words of Jesus in John 4. This is when he's speaking with the woman at the well, and this is, is probably one of the greatest texts in the Bible on what worship is and how we're to worship. Um, but he says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. The Father is seeking worshipers. Right? God doesn't need worship, but He's seeking worshipers. There's a difference there. And, and in Deuteronomy 4.24 it says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Uh, jealous sometimes might seem like a funny word to attribute to God, but it's biblical. Right? God is a jealous God. He, he, he desires for the, the object of our affection, the subject of our affection, um, the highest place of honor in our lives to be him, right? He desires it to be him and him only, nothing else. And, and so to illustrate that a little bit, there's a great quote um, by C.S. Lewis that kind of that helps us understand that, that uh, God doesn't need our worship, and he's not made any less of when we don't worship him. C.S. Lewis says, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. I don't know if you caught that. Let me read that again. A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship Him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. So, God creates us because He desires worship from us, but when we refuse to worship, it's not like we're taking anything away from God. He doesn't need the praise of men. He wants it. And so I think that's a very important point for us to get at the very, at the very first, as we're talking about worship and as we're exploring what is worship how can we worship God? And then in that, how can our lives be transformed by Jesus as we worship? And so the first thing we realize is that we were created as worshipers, right? We were created in God's image. And when we look at God's image, we looked at this several weeks ago, uh, we see that God was, was, exists as, as a trinity, right? We, we look at how God exists as this community of oneness between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and as they exist together in unity, they exist in this kind of this mutual indwelling and this continuous outpouring to each other and, and to us, right? So there, God exists as, as a continuous outpourer. He's continually pouring himself out. And when we say we're created in his image, when we are created to reflect, to image God, that's the essence of what we are as well, right? We are created as continuous outpourers. We are created as worshiping people. And, and so by that, what we mean then is that there is nobody on this planet who does not worship. Every one of us in this room, every person on this earth is worshiping something or someone all the time. And so that, that kind of sets the, the stage for us today as we look um, at what worship is, because I think that helps us understand a little bit um, that, that worship isn't something we can turn on or we can turn off, but rather it's something that we're continuously doing. We're continuously outpouring ourselves because we're created in God's image, right? And, and so then the task for us then as Jesus followers is how can we consistently and constantly directing our focus and our worship on Him, right? And so that's the first thing we'll look at today, is what is worship? And and first and foremost, as we look at what worship is, we understand that worship is a response. It's a response to something or someone. In fact, Harold Best puts it well. He says, worship is a continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become in light of a chosen or choosing God. Worship is a continuous outpouring of everything we are to something, right? Something that we have chosen or are choosing. Now, catch that. It doesn't say that worship is necessarily always worship of the one true creator, God. Right? We can worship other things. Um, and so by that, what we want to do today is we want to make a distinction. And we can talk about worship and understand that worship is a response. Worship is something that we're all doing all the time. But what we want to talk about is true worship. And by true worship, we mean the right response. And and in that, what we're talking about is, so true worship is right response of the right God, right? The true one creator God. And, and um, if, if you're following along in the doctrine book, you'll notice that we actually went out of order this week. Uh, there was another chapter that we skipped. We're going to get to it next week. Don't worry. We'll get there. Um, but uh, we, we, we decided that, that if you look at the progression of what we've been talking about, right? And you look back over the last... 10, 11 weeks in, in the topics we've covered, um, worship is the natural response. Worship needs to be the next thing that happens um, in our life as we come to grasp the realize of what we've been talking about. So, like, we, look, we looked uh, several weeks ago about God existing um, as Trinity, right? And, and God being, he exists, right? And then in love, God speaks and creates. And, and in that, we were created. We are, we are created ones. Um, out of God's loving act of creation. And and then in that, we chose idolatry, right? We chose ourselves over the creator, and in that we fell, and we were marred by sin. And, and so um, we look at God creating and then us falling and separating ourselves from God. The relationship is broken. But then we look at God, and, and, and he pursues, right? He still desires that relationship with us. And so we looked at covenant and how God throughout history has pursued each of us and has pursued people, um, drawing them back into a relationship with him. Ultimately, that culminates in God coming, right? And we looked at the incarnation. We looked at um, Jesus coming to earth and dwelling among us and living among us as a person and, and that ultimate act of love and, and humility, right? And then on earth, Jesus goes to the cross. After living a perfect sinless life, he went to the cross, he died, he, he was, was brutally murdered for our sin, right? He took our shame, he took our sin upon himself, and so that in the sight of God, then we could become holy and blameless and pure. And then last week, we looked at the glorious truth of Jesus' resurrection. He didn't stay dead. The covering of our sin wasn't the final thing that needed to happen. You know, our sin was paid for, was covered by his death. But then in his resurrection, in the power of his rising, we were given life. We were given salvation. and We were saved by his resurrection. And, and so that brings us then to our response. Right? So we look at all of these things that we've been talking about, and what is the response? The response should be worship. The response should be how we live our lives out to God in light of all that he's done, and all that he's continuing to do, and all that he is. And and as we as we do this, as we if we talk about true worship being a right response to God, uh, we have to understand, we go back to the idea that God is Trinity. God exists in this community of oneness. And and our worship reflects that. And the way we worship God reflects his triune character, right? And, and so we, we look and we say, okay, God initiates the act of worship. God is the one that comes first in worship. While we were still sinners, he loved. And so it's out of that that we can respond, right? It's not anything that we initiated or anything that we did of our own merit. Um, so God initiates, and then we have Jesus. Jesus mediates. And what that means is Jesus is the one that paid the price allowing us to enter into God's presence. We can be with God, we can be made right with God because of what Jesus has done. And this is an important one for us. I think a lot of times when we talk about um, entering into God's presence, and, and sometimes we'll, we'll think of things like, like music, or, or um, worship leaders even, as, as people that can draw us into God's presence. And that is not true. The only thing that can draw us into God's presence, the only thing that can bring us into the throne room of God, is Jesus. He alone is the perfect worshiper. And by his sacrifice and by his perfection, he mediates on our behalf. And so we see God initiating worship, Jesus mediating our worship, and then the Holy Spirit empowers our worship. We can't become true worshipers of God. We can't be um, in a right relationship with God unless we've been regenerated. That's the word we use in, in, when we're talking about doctrine. we regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit does is he draws us in. He, he convicts us of our sin and, and lets us see that we need to repent, that we need to turn to God, and that we need to be worshiping Him in our right way and not worshiping anything else. And so, so uh, we can't worship God truly until we've been regenerated. Um, and so then once we're in that, that place, you know, once you know, that interplay of Father, Son, Spirit all works together, we can be in that right place of truly worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And so the reality we're faced with, though, is uh, as we look at what true worship is, we realize that there is an opposite of true worship. There is something other than worship of the true God. Because if we say that every one of us is worshiping all the time and none of us does not not worship, um, the the, uh, the reality is that there are times when our focus and our worship is not directed at God, is not directed at him and and. Uh, in, in the right way. And so what we call that is idolatry. right? And, and idolatry is simply worshiping any created thing rather than worshiping the creator. And, and this has a lot of bandwidth to it, and this is going to make us squirm, I think, a little bit. But uh, we are very good at idolatry. In fact, John Calvin put it this way. He said, The human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is, from his mother's womb, expert in inventing idols. And that's so true. Uh, we, we uh, as, as a race are very good at uh, responding to the the, the pull of, of Satan really is what it is to worship anything but God right? anytime our, our worship and our outpouring is directed at anything but him it 's idolatry and and so what I want to do is I want to look at um, what idolatry can look like, because there's, there's, like I said, there's a bandwidth to it, uh, because a lot of times when we think of idolatry, you know, our mind goes to a certain place, but I think that there is some subtlety to it that, uh, that we don't always think of right away, and, and so um, ultimately, there, there are um, three main types of, of idolatry that I want to look at, and the first is maybe the most obvious, and probably the most foreign to us um, in, in our culture, but it's what I'm going to call pagan idolatry, and, and in Romans 1, Paul talks about this. He says, although they knew God, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And and like I said, this is probably the the thing that we think of most often. When we think of idolatry, we think of of, um, something tangible that we say, you know, this is something that I'm worshiping, you know, and, and a lot of times we associate this with, with different, different pagan religions or, or eastern religions, and, and uh, so we think of that as being pretty foreign to us, um, you know, pretty ancient, but, uh, you know, it's, it's closer than, than we might realize, it's closer than we might think. I, I remember a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to go and visit um, a Hindu temple, actually, and, and it was in Bothel of all places, and uh, I was I was taking a world religions class, and uh, I said we we're going to go visit a Hindu temple. And I was like, well, "Where is there a Hindu temple around here?" Well, it's in Bothell. But um, so so we go out, and, and uh, there's is you know a group of Christian students at Christian Christian uh, seminary, and and we go out to visit this this temple. And um, you know you, you go in, and and you see um, all of the idols up there on the on the platform, and and uh, literally they're just the. The, um, and maybe you, you know more about Hindu Hindu worship than I do, but um, all these different um, gods you know in the form of these different animals and, and in front of these idols were all these different um, you know things that people had brought in food or, or different types of offerings that, you know they brought in to these idols and and um, I remember the the priests or whatever he's called who was there kind of the, the caretaker of, of these idols um, you know we were all standing there and, and observing. Um, and he goes, he comes down the line and starts, you know, kind of sprinkling this water. And, and it was, you know, been, water that had been blessed by the idols or something like that. And, and um, you know, he's kind of going down the line and, and everyone was just kind of like going along with it to be polite, I guess, or whatever. But he got to me and I just kind of went, no, thank you, you know. And, and he kind of looked offended a little bit. And, and uh, you know, he was probably thinking, well, that's kind of rude. And I was thinking, what you're doing is demonic. I don't want any part of it, you know, and, and I wasn't, you know, trying to be um, offensive or rude, but part of me didn't care because, you know, this is something that is false. This is something that, um, you know, and, and I recognize the power of Jesus in me was greater than any power that would have been in that room, right, or in that practice, but, but it was one of those things where I was like, I just didn't want to have a part of it. I just wanted to run away from it, and, and so we think of idolatry, we think of, you know, classic, you know, kind of pagan idolatry and, and these false images or, or things that, that we worship as created things rather than the creator and, and we think, well maybe that you know that doesn't that's that's foreign. It's all right in our backyard. Um, but but this also extends to really anything and we're gonna look at that just in a minute. But anything that we can elevate from being simply a good thing to a God thing, any created thing can become an idol. And and so we're gonna look at that in a second. But another type of idolatry and this is perhaps um, the more sinister type Um, is religious idolatry. And if you look at Jesus and his interaction with the religious leaders of his time, the Pharisees and Sadducees, um, this was the type of idolatry that he got most passionate about. In Mark 7, Jesus says, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And, and this is a, like I said, this is a sinister one because uh, what happens when we begin to idolize religion is we begin to place um, our, our, uh, our hope and our trust in ourselves and our own efforts. And ultimately what we're doing is we're idolizing ourselves and, um, and our good works or our good practices um, and we're putting our trust in that to save us and we're not putting it in, in Jesus. Or we're putting, um, we're putting more um, emphasis and more stock in in the commands of God than in God himself. And that can very easily become an idol for us. And like I said, Jesus was very clear that that is something to be rooted out and um, and to not have anything to do with. And that's something that we constantly have to be doing. And, and so, you know, as we continue to look at what idolatry is, um, as I was mentioning a second ago, you know, we, we, we first, you know, we think of, you know, these, these, carved images, or you know, a golden calf in the Old Testament, and and that kind of classical imagery when it comes to idolatry. But like I mentioned, any created thing, whether it be religion, whether it be um, anything else, can become an idol if we let it go from being a good thing to a God thing. And I've got a couple images to kind of illustrate this. Like I said, these are going to make us squirm a little bit. Um, But uh, I think that um, I'm just going to go through a list, and this is not an exhaustive list by any means, but these are the things that I've come across in my own life, personally, you know, that, that I've seen, that oftentimes we can elevate such things as sports. Right? We can elevate um, you know, the, the pursuit of excellence in sport, or, or the, uh, you know, just, the, you know, just everything that goes along with it. You know, there's a modern-day temple right there. Um, and, and like I said, good things, right? But uh, we can very easily let these become God things. So this next one is a fun one. This is a very interesting season. Um, that we find ourselves in, and um, every, every couple of years or so, um, people begin to idolize elephants and donkeys, and um, we uh, begin to allow them to shift into that mode of simply being good leaders, but into that, that mode of being saviors, functional saviors, and, and in that we elevate politicians or a political party to the status of idol. Um, another one that we chase after, another one that we elevate to idol status a lot of times is, is just the, the uh, experiencing life, right? And getting out and traveling or, or uh, you know, getting some rays um, at a resort or whatever it may be. You know, this, this, this uh, pursuit of um, uh, vacationing or, or just experiencing what the world has to offer. And like I said, again, good things. Um, but we can let them become God things if we let them be elevated higher ...than the Creator, right? These are all created things. We can elevate them higher than the Creator. And, and then uh, a lot of times what we can do is we elevate the human body, right? We uh, can get so consumed with, with fitness and the way we look and, and the, um, being healthy and all these things. And, and by extension of that, what we can do is, is oftentimes one of the biggest idols in our culture is, is sex, right? And we idolize our bodies in that way. And we elevate, again, the created body above the Creator God. And, and so, again... Good things in the right context, but uh, um, can easily become God things if we're honest with ourselves. And and you know I could go on down the list. There's you know lots of things that you know I think we're confronted with daily in our lives that we can allow to become our idols. You know whether it be our job, whether it be education, or or um, all these other pursuits. And the one that probably confronts me the most, where I start to squirm the most, is my family. And uh, there they are. That's a that's a good looking family, right? Um, And man, I have to tell you what I will. I will break laws, and I will break people to protect my family. And um, that's the way it should be, I think. Uh, God calls us to protect our family, provide for our family, to elevate them above everything else, really, I've talked about on the list. If you're putting anything in this list that I've talked about above your family and letting that be above your family, then you're in sin. And you need to repent of that because you have placed that above what God has commanded you to be caretaker of. With that said sometimes we can allow our families to become our idols as well. You know, we can let the good thing of caring for, loving for, protecting our families, we can let that become more to us than God himself. And, and so, like I said, a confronting list, uh, an uncomfortable list, but a lot of times it's good for us just to be honest with ourselves and say, am I placing something in the higher, higher plane than I'm placing God? And even with that, what is my number two? So, okay, say, say God is, is my number one. Be honest with ourselves. What is number two on the list? And then how far down on the list is it? Right? And, and if it's close, does it kind of leapfrog a little bit? Does it kind of go like this? Or is it God and then everything else? Right? Because that's what God desires of us. God desires worshipers. And so that's what takes us to what we want to look at next, and is how does Jesus want to be worshiped? So we, we look at what worship is, so when we have an understanding of what worship is, then how does God want us to worship him? How does Jesus want to be worshipped? And the first thing is wholeheartedly. He wants our whole hearts, and he wants every single part of us. In Luke ten, twenty-seven, 27, Jesus um, affirms uh, the, the response from one of the religious leaders, and he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. That list right there pretty much covers everything. Right Our body, our mind, our will, our strength, all these things. God wants that from us in worship. He wants um, that kind of a devotion from us and and um, i it's kind of illustrates that I, I enjoy watching um, the Olympics about a month or so ago when they were on and and um, it just it fascinates me mostly because I'm about as athletic as a hippo, but um, the uh, I love watching my, my one year old son has more athletic ability than I do, which is sad and exciting at the same time. But, um, but uh, so I love watching the Olympics, right? And, and I see all these athletes, and I see the effort that they put into this moment, right? They see, they see the, the, the years of, of devotion that they put into 30 seconds or whatever maybe may be on the platform or in the pool or, you know, however long it is. Um, but they've literally given their entire body, their entire mind, their entire will to that sport, right? So that one moment. And I think, man, what a, what a picture of devotion and what a picture of wholehearted commitment um, that God desires of us in our worship. This is what God desires from all of us as we live for Him, right? As we live lives of worship devoted to Him. He wants every part of us. And, and He's not just wanting us to do the right actions. He wants it from the core of who we are. He doesn't want us to just recite good things about Him. He wants us to delight ourselves in Him. That goes back to God creates us as worshiping people, and he's seeking worshipers. He's not seeking people who go through all the right motions. Um, in fact, in uh, I don't have it on my notes, but in in Amos chapter five, there's there's a convicting passage where um, you know, God looks at, at Israel and they have all the right motions. They're doing all the right things, but He says. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. And so God says, get to the heart. Get to the heart of what worship is about. And and as we look at worship, we see that what he needs from us, what he wants from us, not need, what he wants from us, what he desires from us, is is wholehearted commitment and, and wholehearted worship. Um, we should be delighting in Him, not just simply reciting good things about Him, but truly from the depths of our of our person, delighting in, in Him and Jesus. And so, God desires wholehearted worship. The second thing that God desires, or the way Jesus desires for us to worship Him, is relentlessly, never letting up, never never ceasing in in worshiping Him. In in Job, we see a great picture of a relentless worshipper. Um, The the story goes that Job has just lost everything, literally everything, all all his his, uh, physical possessions, his his home, his land, his livestock, his his family has has been taken from him, and so he is literally left with nothing, and he is undone. Um, And this is his response in Job 1.20 and 21. It says, Then Job arose, after hearing the news, and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job's response to the worst moment in his life was worship. And as, as we look at that example, as we, as we look at our own lives, the reality is that every single moment of our life, God is worthy of our praise. He's never less worthy of when things are hard, or when things are difficult, or when we don't necessarily feel him, but be, because of what he has done, because of what he accomplished on the cross and the resurrection, that in itself, that act right there, makes him worthy forever of our praise. And that means, this is such a great truth. That means that in every single moment, our lowest and our highest, he's worthy of our praise, and and uh, we have a reason to praise him. You know, we can we can transcend our circumstance. Because God has died, because he's resurrected, and because we can live in him. And um, my wife gave me permission to uh, use use this story, and and uh, so I'm going to share it with you because um, I was encouraged by it. But uh, we were talking this week, and, and one of the things she was sharing with me is, you know, as you, as you, uh, you we have two young kids, as you saw, and, and life gets kind of crazy. Um, and, you know, Michelle was telling me that uh, there have been times uh, recently where she's just felt... Um, like she's doing the right motions, right, or going through all the right, right things, but uh, God is 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 not necessarily responding or feeling very present um, to her. And um, what she came to a realization, she was telling me that that um, first of all that, that He was worthy of a praise no matter what, right? And and that's what we're we're talking about here. But um, and so not to to feel like we could ever stop in that, but but uh, that that uh, she wasn't worshiping enough. Right? And, and by that what she meant was she was carving out these times of worship right? and, and carving out these times of reading the Bible and praying and, and singing all these things right? and, and doing all the right things but, but coming to this realization that worship should be a non-stop thing. Worship should be a, an ongoing thing. And so what she started doing was trying to find ways to worship just in the middle of the mundane, right? So like sitting down with, with the kids and, and uh, singing some songs, doing that as worship, singing some worship songs to God or, or just reading books with the kids or whatever it may be, but doing that as worship. And she shared with me, you know, just the, the uh, what is that, what that has done in her life has been amazing. You know, it's, just, it's transformed the way she worships. It's transformed the way she lives because, it, you know, it's, it's, Um, is just understanding that worship should be relentless. You know, this continual pursuit of how can I worship God in this moment? How can I worship God in this moment? How can I worship God in this moment? Um, And that can change everything for us uh, as we seek to be true worshipers with right response to God. And so God calls us um, to worship Jesus wholeheartedly, relentlessly, and third, corporately. And what we mean by corporately is, is that God calls us to worship by what we're doing right now, right? We're we're called to gather as people. This is why we come together every week. And and um, so uh, what we what happens is that uh, the Holy Spirit puts in us this desire for community. So when we come to Jesus, when we come to saving faith in Him, we um, we're not called to do it alone. And the Holy Spirit implants in us that that longing to be with others and to be in community with Him. And so so He calls us to gather regularly in Hebrews ten. Um uh, verses twenty-four it says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Because what happens when we come together? As God calls us, you know, don't neglect it. Take church seriously. Take this time. Seriously, make it a priority. This is this is a commandment. It's not just a good idea, it's a commandment. Because what happens when we come together is we realize and we remember and we're reminded that we are a countercultural kingdom. We're we're living in a way that is countercultural to the world, that we live our lives in the other six days of the week. Right? And so when we come together in these moments on Sundays, when we come together in our homes for our small groups, when we come together as community, we're reminded, we're encouraged that. Our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven, and it's in Christ. It's in his kingdom. And so we're reminded of that, and um, that's why we gather. And so as we as we look at corporate worship, there's just a few things um, that I want to—the list is from from the doctrine book. If you read the chapter, then you came across this, but it was a, um, a good list for us, I think. And because this is a doctrine series, I think it's helpful to understand some of these things, but— um, just a, a quick list of what needs to happen in corporate worship. When we come together like this, um, there, there are some certain things that God has commanded. Because we don't want to just worship God, um, but we want to worship him in the right ways, right? And so how can we worship him rightly as we gather? And, and so the first thing is that it must be all about God. Our worship needs to be God-centered. If we're coming for any other reason than that, then, um, or if we're planning our services for any other reason than that, then there's something off track. If if we're planning things in a way that uh, people are receiving the glory um, or the church is receiving the glory, um, then then as leaders we need to be held accountable to that and we need to be called to a different task and keeping it all about God. And as we come to worship, our attitude should be coming that it is all about God. It's not coming to say, how can I receive something from this experience? That's part of it, right? We do receive. We are are blessed and we're encouraged um, as we worship. But our main priority as we gather is because of God. It's all about him. It's God-centered. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that it needs to be intelligible. That just means that we we um, we uh, do it in a way that makes sense. We speak the same language together. For years, the church worshipped in a different language than the people spoke, and so they were just singing something that they didn't even know what it meant, right? And and so we 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 hold this as a priority. Worship needs to be intelligible, and with that, you know, we we invest in things like sound systems and uh, microphones and things that we can help understand what is being taught, what is being communicated, because um, we want our service to be intelligible. Third, um, it must be seeker-sensible. And what we mean by that is that if you are uh, coming in and you are someone who does not know Jesus, you're not um, in, in him, then uh, we call you a seeker. Sometimes we use the word curious. You know, you're here, um, but you des- nef- necessarily haven't taken that step yet of faith. And and so as, as we put our services together, and during these times on Sunday mornings, we want to be very sensible to that. Understanding that there are people in this room, our our hope and our prayer is that there's people in this room who don't yet know Jesus. And so with that, we want to make our services accessible. We want to explain things. Uh, We want to communicate what's going on. Why are we doing what we're doing right now? And and so um, everyone who's here can be a part of the experience. Uh, Fourth, uh, our, our corporate worship gatherings must be unselfish. And this just simply means that when we come together, we don't want to be distracting to others around us, right? We, we uh, are called to worship God um, personally and, and, and uh, wholeheartedly in our lives, but when we gather like this, we're doing it as a community, and there's a different dynamic there, right? And so that means if, if, you know, if my personal expression of worship is to uh, run around waving my arms in the air and screaming at the top of my lungs, that's great. I'm not going to do it here, though, um, and, and so there's, there's other prescriptions for, for what that looks like, and, and you can look that up in 1 Corinthians 14. But basically it just means as we gather, we want to be sensitive, we want to be aware of the people around us, so that we can come together and bless God um, as, as a unified people. Uh, fifth, it must be orderly. cool thing about this is the Bible doesn't ever give us um, an actual order. Uh, there's no right or wrong when it comes to liturgy, how we structure our service, how we worship. Uh, that's why we, sometimes we kind of change things up and we do things a little bit differently and, um, but the Bible does say it needs to be orderly it needs to be non-chaotic uh, it's not like we just show up and say okay what do you want to do today we, we have um, order and, and with that the Holy Spirit comes in and, and there's room for him to direct as he wills but we do want to be orderly and then sixth um, is that uh, corporate worship needs to be missional and that simply means that we understand our culture Right, we as we gather for worship, we we uh, know the culture that we're living in. We know the people we're trying to reach, and so we're trying to um, set ourselves up as a church accordingly. Right, the vibe we set, the the music we play, the instruments we use—even you know these things, um, the the technology we, we use—all these things you know are part of trying to understand our culture and help them um, better worship God. And so all these things are part of corporate worship. And and uh, so like I said this is a doctrine series. So this this is part of our doctrine. This is part of why we do what we do. Um, and then, just real quick, and on, on corporate worship. Corporate worship really kind of covers a spectrum of, of four things. And um, it must involve proclamation and passion. And it must contain both adoration and action. And what we mean by that is proclamation simply is um, something that we do in our head, right? We proclaim. It's, it's thoughtful um, declaration of who God is, what he's done. We're proclaiming God's goodness. Whereas passion, I would... Likened to be more in the heart, right? Passion is you know expressing our love, expressing our devotion, um, our our uh, our adoration of God, and and uh, so so those two things must exist together. That's why you know we do a blend of of music that is you know we're declaring truths about God, and then there's some songs where we're doing um, more just songs that are directed to God. You know, not so much about Him, but they're to Him, and, and so there's a there is a blend there, and there's a balance there, and and then uh, the. The second thing there is the adoration and action. We come together for adoration. We come together to adore God, and then we act by leaving. We go um, into our world. Now, we don't stop worshiping when we go, as we looked at earlier, right? We're continuously worshiping. But we leave, then having worshiped God, to go take him as worshipers into our homes and our workplaces and our schools. And so all this is a part of how we worship. And so as, as we as we look at what is worship, how we worship, um, then we come to what we've been mentioning um, is, is that worship transforms us. And, and we look at what does worship do. Um, and I want to read from Romans 12 again. It's where we started, and I want to come back to it. Um, so if you still have it open on your lap, um, flip back to Romans 12, and we're going to read this one more time. Uh, the first two verses says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. And so we realize that worship transforms us. And so let's unpack that just real briefly. Um, and the first thing that worship does is it transforms us is it brings lasting change from within. Uh, Ezekiel 11 gives us a great picture of this. God speaking to the prophet, and he says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Get, when we come to God, when we come to faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit regenerates us, literally gives us a new heart, what happens is our image, the one that had been covered and, and marred, by the fall and by sin, begins to be renewed, begins to reflect the creator, and we begin to reflect his image. It changes us back into being able to image God as we were originally created and intended. Um, And and this transformation has to happen inside of us. It has to happen from within. Uh, We can't do it from from outside. It would be like saying, I want to take a caterpillar, And I want to transform this caterpillar into a butterfly. So I'm going to go find myself some butterfly wings. And I'm going to tie them on to the caterpillar. And I've got a butterfly. You don't have a butterfly. You've probably got an irritated caterpillar. But um, if you want to see real, lasting transformation, you have to let it go through the process from within. right? You have to let it build its cocoon, right, and then go through that metamorphosis of change. And in the same way, that's what God does in us in worship, As as we worship him, you know, as we direct ourselves towards him, as that continuous outpouring, he comes in and he renews us from the inside out. You know, a lot of times we try to renew ourselves from the outside, or we try to, to use religious idolatry um, to, to try to, to uh, save ourselves or change the way we live. And, and in Second Corinthians 11, Paul talks about people who do this as being false apostles, deceitful workmen, uh, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. It's fake. You know, if we try to just enact transformation by our actions, or, or we try to force it to happen, it's not genuine, it's not lasting, it's not real. And, and Paul calls it um, a disguise. And, and so really, what the difference here is between conforming, you are trying to conform ourselves. Uh, as Paul says, don't conform yourself to the patterns of this world. As we look around the world, don't conform ourselves to that. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Something that happens within. You know, it's kind of like um, my kids. If if I spend my time raising my kids simply to act in the right ways um, or behave well, ultimately I failed as a parent. I have not done my job. Uh, But my job as a parent is to teach them to to uh, ultimately love the things of God, to love God. Um, so that then they can be transformed from within, so that they love to do the right thing, not simply do it because that's what they've been told. And, and that's what needs to happen in us in worship, right? It's not just trying to modify our behavior so we can please God, but as we worship Him, He transforms us into um, people who are living for Him. So that's the first thing worship does, is it transforms by bringing lasting change from within. And the second thing is that it realigns power in our lives. And what we mean by this um, is, is illustrated in 2 Corinthians 3. It says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What happens in worship is we say, God, I'm relinquishing my own ability to save myself. I'm recognizing my sin and the futility of my own effort, and I'm relinquishing it to you and giving the power to you because I realize the power in my own self is not enough to overcome the sin. It's not enough. And, and, and the reality is, when we were before we were in Christ, we were all slaves to sin. Paul talks about that in Romans. We were all slaves to sin in our life, and there is no way that we can overcome that. Um, but when we come to him, when we come to that faith in him and are able to live for him as worshipers, we receive that power from God to overcome our sin. The power of him is greater than the power of sin in us. And, and so what that means for us is that our focus no longer has to be on the idol of our sin. But our focus can be on Jesus. And and so as we put our focus on Jesus, um, our, our gaze has shifted from, from spending all our time looking at our sin, even trying to fight our sin, right? Trying to control it, trying to manage it, trying to put it off. But we can't do that unless... We put our eyes on him, and then in his power, his transforming power, our sin goes away. It's like the song that they taught earlier. Um, I, I, I love this line, um, and I was scribbling it down as they sang it, but um, higher than the mountains that I face, stronger than the power of the grave is God's love. You know, And when we worship, we tap into that, and we have that same power. And And so what happens as we worship God? He transforms us by a realignment of the power. You know, it's not living out of our own power. We're not slaves to the power of sin, but we're living freely in the power of his resurrection. And then last, what worship does as it transforms us is it unleashes missional warriors. Matthew 5, it says, You are the light of the world. And Jesus says, A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So just as we ourselves have been transformed as we worship God, we're then called to go and be transformers of our culture. So worship not only transforms us, but then we are empowered to go um, as missional warriors, and, and by warriors I just simply mean people that have victory. We have victory over sin, death, and hell, and so we can live in that power. All right? As we're worshiping God, we don't have to be subject to the power of sins we just talked about. So we're, we're, we're going forth confidently, and we're battling the forces of, of hell, and the, battles, the, the forces of sin and Satan in the world, and, and so we're going forth um, in, in that sense. Um, but uh, we, we become transformers of our culture, you know, as we take the message of Jesus, the glorious message of Jesus to a world that we know needs him. And, um, in fact, John Piper put it this way. He said that the highest, um, the highest, I'm going to mess up the quote, but the highest goal of the church is, is not missions, but it's worship. And, and he, he goes on to say, then, that um, missions exist because worship does not exist. Missions exist because worship does not exist. And what that means is there are places in this world where people are not living as worshipers of God. There are people in this world who have not received that regenerating power of the Holy Spirit to be able to worship Jesus. And so because of that, we go. Because of that, God sends us out um, and unleashes us to go bring more people to be worshipers of Him. And so we go obediently, but the goal is more worshipers. And, And so it's important to understand that that is... That's the order there. And and so these are all things that worship does in us. And so just kind of as we wrap up, um, looking back on, on what, we've, what we've looked at this morning, you know, first and foremost, we were created as worshipers. We were created by God to delight in Him. That's what He seeks from us. But because of sin, uh, we turn to idols. And we turn away from worshiping in the right way to uh, idolatry in the wrong way. And... Um, so sin has diverted our focus. But the Holy Spirit draws us and when we respond to His call we we can we can receive that power from God as we worship Him to transform us from the inside, to shape us, to to, to turn us into um, people living freely in His power to go forth then and take and take Him to the world. And so what we're going to do, we're going to worship here in just a moment. The band's going to come back up. We're going to uh, worship in song. We're going to worship by offering our, our offerings to God as we do each week. Uh, we're going to spend some time taking communion, which is the practice we do of uh, taking bread, taking juice, which represents his body and his blood. And we're going to worship in all these ways. And So I encourage you um, to, to, to wholeheartedly engage in that. But uh, as I close, I'm just going to close with this because um, this is good news for us as, as uh, we look at what worship can do in our lives. And, and it's this. If you're caught in sin, worship coaxes us back into the light. If your spiritual life seems lifeless, worship renews wonder. If you're plagued by worry, worship reminds us of God's trustworthiness. If you're resting on your self-righteousness, worship convicts us of the futility of our efforts and our need for grace. And if you've become complacent, Worship opens our eyes to a lost world. Let's pray and let's worship. Jesus, thank you for your grace, your incredible saving grace that allows us to um, be found in you and to be worshipers of you. May you uh, continually teach us and draw us to that place of having our hearts fully uh, devoted to you where you are the object, you are the subject of our affection. Uh, May we constantly be casting off our aisles. May we constantly um, be be reminding ourselves by your spirit, by your word, to place you as the highest object in our life. And and in that, may you be glorified, God. Uh, May you transform us by your grace, uh, by your love, by your power alone, not by anything of our own merit. We love you and we thank you and we worship you today. In your name we pray. Amen.